Hello and good evening. Uh, I'm Sandra Cortesi, the Director of Youth and Media at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Uh, I have the great pleasure to welcome you to this special event uh, co-organized by the Berkman Center and UNICEF. At the Berkman Center, we have been collaborating with UNICEF's Digital Citizenship and Safety Project for a number of years now. Together, we have been exploring how young people are using digital technologies and the Internet in developing and mostly low-income countries around the world. We have done work together, and with UNICEF country offices, we have looked at fascinating countries, uh, such as Turkey, South Africa, Indonesia, Vietnam, just to name a few. Today, we are very excited to bring together our colleagues from UNICEF with our uh, other colleagues and uh, collaborators uh, who have done wonderful work in this field, both nationally as well as internationally. Our goal today is to take stock and reflect on some of the lessons learned, but even more importantly, to look ahead and discuss how a future global agenda for children's right in the digital age may look like. It's my great pleasure to welcome first Gerrit Berger, who has led a team introducing social media and digital engagement to UNICEF over the past five years. Gerrit is also a Berkman Fellow, so no one is better positioned than him to frame today's session uh, and introduce further our keynote speaker, Sonia Livingstone. So without further ado, Gerrit, please. Uh, sorry, sorry, before clapping, three additional things. First, <laughs> sorry, technical things always first. Uh, this session here is being recorded and live webcasted. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, there is going to be wine and cheese afterwards. Um, <laughs> Only for the people in the room, exactly. And last but not least, uh, our hashtag for this evening, just use hashtag Berkman, that would be great. So now you can do the clapping. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. All right, thanks everybody for being here. I just wanted to contextualize this a little bit, um, at least uh, from my perspective. Uh, we started partnering with the Berkman Center like uh, four years ago, almost five, and um, we just realized that we have like an agenda in common, and at this point, um, there wasn't really so much going on in UNICEF in the area of digital citizenship and safety, and I'm not coming strictly from a research background. I'm involved in the research, but also I'm a communicator and I'm leading with my team UNICEF social media efforts. And um, over the years we have built up with all our colleagues in country offices worldwide like a following of over 11 million people on Twitter and Facebook and other platforms. And these uh, followers, um, to a large extent, they're really in the age bracket from, I don't know, 16 to 25. And so it, we felt that we have like a big uh, responsibility to educate them as well um, about the benefits and the risks re related to digital engagement. This is how we started um, the project with the Berkman Center on Digital Citizenship and Safety. And since then, um, like Sandra just said, 
we are operating with country offices approximately in 15 countries where we um, support uh, local research uh, to form the evidence base of uh, communication campaigns to raise awareness about the potential risks and benefits of digital engagement, but also give the country office um, the evidence base to work with their governments uh, for policy change um, as appropriate. Um, over the last uh, four years, a lot has happened um, simultaneously in different pockets in UNICEF. It's quite a big planet, UNICEF. We are operating in 159 country offices and national committees, I think. And so sometimes these uh, innovation agendas or new agendas, they emerge in different parts of the organization. And so um, today is actually quite a big day uh, because uh, Sonia Livingston, she was really instrumental with my colleagues in Florence to kind of pull all this together and look at it through a lens where we uh, ask ourselves the question, what next? You know, what are we doing with the uh, great work that has started in different parts of the organization? How do we bring it together and how do we take it all to the next level? So I'm really pleased uh, Sonia is with us tonight and I would like to introduce her and hand over to her. Thank you. I've gained everyone's notes. <laughs> um, so thank you um, so much for inviting me to um, speak on this subject today. And um, I should start by thanking um, uh, the Berkman Center, especially um, Urs Gasser, and also um, my colleagues at UNICEF, especially uh, Yasmina um, Byrne from the uh, Office of Research, uh, and my co-author on the report that I have um, uh, we are releasing today for UNICEF, um, Monica Bulger, um, who is uh, sitting here too. Um, so those are kind of my primary thanks, but also thank you for um, being here this evening and for kind of joining in what I think is really a very, um, uh, should be a very widespread conversation among researchers from multiple disciplines and uh, also policymakers and uh, those who uh, take initiatives regarding children's rights all around um, the world. So I thought I might just begin by saying something about the, um, the keyword um, clash in my title. I have too many keywords, and I played with them lots of different ways. And I um, began by um, really, really the subtext you will see of my talk is I think there should be a global agenda for children's rights. But I'm a researcher, so I will offer a global research agenda and hope that that um, stimulates uh, thinking about a global uh, agenda more broadly. Then um, I wanted to, I initially titled it um, uh, An Agenda for Children's Digital Rights, and UNICEF um, explained to me that children's rights are children's rights, but the digital age may reconfigure them, and I found that a very um, helpful starting point. So I still have um, a lot of keywords there, um, but rights for me, as you will see, is a, a, a useful word, and I say this with some hesitation in a law school, um, but it is a useful way of keeping together risks and opportunities and thinking about uh, risks and opportunities in a context of a debate which very often becomes um, bifurcated uh, between risks or opportunities, and there the twain shall meet. So, um, children's lives in the digital age 
Um, I think we kind of, we, we know that my starting point, which is to say there is a continually changing, fast developing information and communication environment that in many ways we know and can see is reshaping children's lives for better and for worse all across the globe. So we know that more and more children are using online and mobile technologies in their daily lives and are increasingly relying on them not just for their leisure, but as part of the infrastructure of their learning, their engagement, their participation, their play, and uh, eventually their work. So we've reached the point where we would say drawing the line between the online and the offline is becoming impossible, which is not to say that they're the same thing, but that every experience in children's lives has, I think, now an online dimension, whether it's directly through the way in which children engage with social media or it's the way in which technology, services, and contents affect children's lives um, around them, even if they personally lack access. Um, figures are surprisingly hard, or perhaps not surprisingly hard, to um, obtain, but here's some figures from the uh, ITU, uh, rather crudely uh, separating uh, developed and developing countries just to kind of illustrate the point. Um, a, a couple of points really. Firstly, that internet penetration in the developed world has grown very rapidly. We know that you can see though also on the left hand uh, graph that it is picking up in developing countries also. And as the second figure makes clear, once it picks up in developing countries, we are really talking about a completely different scale of um, numbers of internet users and young people are um, as, as, as um, here also in the vanguard. So surrounding these figures and under, uh, behind these figures is a whole range of national and international policy frameworks that are being formulated very unevenly, um, probably still much more in the global north than the global south. And it's to that um, developing policy uh, uh, context that I want to think about what is the research agenda, what um, can we offer. The quotes in my talk are from the uh, report, I should have said, and I thank all of those who um, we interviewed for uh, our report. So they're um, people who said some great things, and this one uh, pretty much captured everything I want to say, which is to say, wouldn't it be great to have a convention for the rights of the child in the digital age, and that would be something we could give governments and uh, direct our activities towards. What's striking about many of the emerging legislative and regulatory structures designed to promote technological innovation and mass market provision around the world is how rarely these mention children and how little attention children get um, in the kind of much larger push towards getting everyone online uh, in whichever country we are thinking about. Uh, perhaps it can be assumed, though I don't think so, that providing for the general public will meet children's needs. Uh, perhaps it can be assumed that parents are solely responsible for children's needs and we don't need to think about other kinds of uh, regulatory or social structures for them. But we don't make those assumptions in the offline world. We think of all kinds of ways in which we provide particularly for children's needs offline um, and we're not yet doing that um, very uh, consistently and considerably online. 
So I'm um, taking uh, uh, this, this quotation very nicely, kind of flags the way in which I want to think about rights in terms of the U United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which interestingly, although only formulated 25 years ago, is kind of pre-digital, and um, there's a certain amount of work going on in thinking about how to uh, think about the provisions of the convention in the uh, digital um, age, though that's what I would like to see much more of. Um, I'm perfectly aware that the uh, convention is controversial in many ways and even more aware that it is very poorly implemented in most parts of the world. So it's not to say, here's something that already works offline, let's do it online, but to say, here is an organizing structure which enables us to think about the kinds of standards, the kinds of expectations, the kinds of values that we would like to have uh, for children online and offline. So I don't especially expect you to read all of that, but I just thought I'd just kind of flag up what are the key um, articles uh, in the United Nations, in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and to pull out the way in which they are commonly discussed in terms of the three Ps of protection, provision, and participation, because I think that's a very helpful structure also for thinking about the ways in which we have been researching children's lives um, online. Of course, the global nature of the internet is particularly challenging for policymakers. So too is the fact that the internet is largely blind to age. So the in online, we don't know who is a child or not. Um, we are very far, therefore, on the internet for treating children in terms of their evolving capacities, which is a very um, key feature of the convention. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about it. The OECD recently did a report trying to pull together um, all the research that is existing so far about the way in which children's lives um, are um, uh, being affected by living in the digital age, and that's one of a number of uh, reviews that has recently been done. Um, UNICEF also, the ITU, um, Berkman here in my own European research network, EU Kids Online. We've, I think there's a number of us have been trying to keep tabs on what is the kind of evolving shape and structure of the kinds of um, research that is being done. And I would like to just spend a little time now thinking about um, some of the things that we have achieved in the research that's been done so far, remembering how very recent the internet is, um, so we haven't had much time to do it, um, but also um, dwelling a little more on what I see as the key challenges for the research agenda going forward. And I'm going to flag six of those before drawing to a conclusion. So the first one is um, perhaps the one that gets most media attention, most public attention, and is most um, commonly on uh, um, parents and uh, policymakers' minds, which is the question of harm, the question of risk of harm. And uh, many of us here in the room, actually, and um, beyond have been uh, gathering evidence about the ways in which access to the internet, use of the internet, may be compounding um, the kinds of offline risks and negative experiences that children have long experienced. So we have now quite a body of research on sexual exploitation, on bullying, on exposure to pornography, on other kinds of potentially harmful experiences, and we know that this evidence is already driving the public and the policy debate. 
I think we still have a persistent confusion, nonetheless, about exactly what constitutes harm. And I would like us to think um, more about uh, harm, uh, perhaps shifting from uh, thinking so much about risk. So just to give you an example, we have a lot of discussion about pornography um, and why it is that children shouldn't be exposed to pornography online, but there is not so much discussion about exactly what harm we think results from such exposure. Are we worried about children being upset or shocked in the immediate time? Are we worried about them learning certain kinds of sexual behaviours? Are we worried about them learning um, a distorted sexual identity in their future? We don't have those discussions anything like as much as we have discussions about how to measure exposure to pornography in the here and now. One reason, of course, is that researchers, I think, are really struggling to measure um, harm. Uh, and if, if you like, the way I think about it is that rather than measuring the risk of harm, we tend to measure, um, as it were, the risk of a risk. We, we, we measure the probability of exposure to pornography rather than the probability that exposure to pornography will result in that kind of unstated and untheorized um, harm. Uh, so I know that some researchers are making um, uh, efforts now to really get much closer to harm rather than risk, but I still feel that there's um, a long way to go. And just to illustrate that, um, of course, while uh, risks occur online and offline, harm, I think, fundamentally occurs offline. It occurs to the, to the child, to the person. And I'll just give you an example of the kinds of figures I think we're lacking in relation to the Internet. Um, when I turn to figures to say, okay, so what is going on in children's lives offline? What do we know? It is not uncontroversial to, though, you know, criminologists will always argue, but it's not uncontroversial to produce a list, as it were, of what are the kind of harms that befall, befall children offline. This is um, a few years ago in Britain, but I suspect there are similar figures. You may have more gun crime here. Mm. What we don't have is any way to link the risks, the, harm, the harms that are befalling children um, in any one country to any kind of um, uh, involvement of the internet. So we don't know whether the internet is making these figures worse, but what we do know is that, um, and I can think of this in Britain and in America and perhaps in other countries too, these figures are largely not getting worse. And one might have expected that these figures would be getting worse if the internet were really um, such a source of problems in children's lives. I think the only exception is that figures for anxiety and depression and childhood kind of mental um, difficulties do show uh, some worsening. And we can begin to make an argument, though we, I think we haven't yet, about the ways in which uh, the, um, the, the kinds of interactions and the kinds of time children are spending online might be associated with some of those mental health issues. But but many of the things that parents worry about, you know, children being um, abducted or um, sexually abused or whatever, these figures are not, as it were, getting worse. We can make a parallel argument about opportunities. And I said I wanted to keep the risks and the opportunities together, and I, and I really um, uh, uh, do. Uh, even though questions of provision and participation are often kind of downplayed by comparison with the urgency of the uh, protection agenda. So here, too, I think we're much more familiar offline with thinking about the way in which, as a society, we need to provide children with learning opportunities, with opportunities for play, creativity, interaction, and, indeed, direct participation in matters that concern them. 
Online, I think this is a debate that is just beginning and we haven't had it yet. So what does good look like for the internet and children? How much participation, creativity are we really requiring of them before we say we have done a good job in providing for their um, needs? How really do we imagine that these online and offline uh, resources and provision are going to intersect in a way that makes sense for children who are very much engaged with the um, online world? In the EU Kids Online project um, in Europe, we've been mapping a kind of ladder of opportunities and identifying how many children use the internet in a very kind of basic way, just for downloading and watching clever things with animals on YouTube, but actually not progressing to many of the uh, more advanced and more creative and more civic uh, activities that society, I think, has hoped for. We don't know what that ladder would look like in many other countries in the world, and I think you know, that's really an open question. Where, what, where, where might these paths lead and where um, should uh, policymakers be trying to kind of take them? Okay, a point I um, uh, always want to stress is when we bring the opportunities and the risks together, we see how blurry that line is between the two. And many of the things that children do online as offline, we don't quite know whether to say those are a risk or an opportunity. So the debate about children's play spaces, um, I offer you as a kind of exact parallel, or no, a very nice parallel, of the ways in which um, risky opportunities are kind of in, important in children's lives. We do provide protections about them. We also have to provide opportunities. And under some circumstances, these, this is a fun, I've, I've put up photographs of fun, but under other circumstances, I've put up photographs that might show incipient danger. And we need to know a lot about the context, really, in order to understand uh, when does a situation tip one way or another. Because without these opportunities, online as well as offline, children won't build the kind of resilience that we really want them to build if they are not to be, as it were, constantly provided for, if they are at a certain point to start uh, navigating the um, world of the digital media on their own. So that brings me to another um, thorny point, one I think that we have wrestled with a lot in this, in this uh, field and we need to um, uh, continue to wrestle with, which is to understand what are the risk and protective factors that mediate the relationship between, as it were, risk, whether it's online or offline, and harm, which, as I've suggested, is kind of primarily offline. So I think we need to rethink the relationship between the risk and the protective factors. And I think we're making a good start here in identifying what the different um, uh, psychological, uh, contextual, technological considerations are in kind of remixing the ways in which children interact. Um, so I put up a couple of quotes there to, um, to provoke, really. Um, we've got quite a lot of research that supports um, the... Uh, the left-hand view, which is that those who are vulnerable offline are also those who are vulnerable online. Perhaps the, these are, this is, in a way, a familiar problem in the world of child um, protection. But our measures are quite weak, and there are many children who are coming into difficulties online that we perhaps couldn't predict so well. And I think that's where there is a challenge. Maybe there are other factors um, that we need to be uh, thinking about. And again, of course, though children's motivations, I think, to use the internet are turning out to be reasonably similar in different countries where the research is being um, conducted, the conditions under which those, um, those activities tip over into opportunities or risks, I think, differ considerably in ways that we have not even barely um, begun to research. 
Okay, well, I could have put this one at the start or the end, but um, I mean, it's kind of obvious that much, or it's obvious to, to, to many uh, in this field, that much of the research on how children are engaging in the a digital um, age has been conducted in the global north, though promising work is being done in, in now in developing countries, and I think UNICEF is really spearheading that kind of effort in, in really doing uh, primary empirical research with children in a lot of um, countries around the world. So we have a question sitting here in a, you know, in a comfortable lecture theatre in, in Cambridge. Um, do we imagine that what we are learning in the kind of early adopter countries is something that we can take out and um, extend and kind of say, we have learned these lessons now, you know, you in the red parts of the world um, can benefit? Or do we imagine that our knowledge gained thus far is really quite seriously constrained and we have to be very cautious in beginning to say, well, we've learned this, you can have our resources, you can have our methods, you can learn um, our lessons. It's kind of a shame, and I want to, um, uh, I, I, to, to promote, therefore, the importance of our now really beginning to do research on a kind of more uh, international scale that includes questions of benchmarking and evaluation. Because you could say, given the paucity of research in the global south, this is the perfect moment to get to do our benchmarking on what kinds of benefits children are experiencing, what kinds of harms children are experiencing. So we see, as digital media become more embedded, really how uh, society um, begins to change. So that um, is a priority. I also think um, there is, um, as uh, someone we interviewed from UNICEF there said, it's very easy to kind of do the research, find out what the kids say, find out what they're doing, and then leave. Um, we need to know which of the interventions that we have um, uh, or that, uh, that are being implemented are working. And we need to build that into the research process so that we begin to learn from the uh, consequences of those interventions. So those were my kind of six... Um, Six challenges, if you like, to the research community uh, as we begin to formulate what we're going to uh, do next. Okay, so I have two uh, kinds of concluding uh, points, and then I'm going to hear what uh, others have to say. Um, first, just to say, okay, why do we need a global research agenda? And I say this partly because... Um, uh, one of the things I've discovered in doing research in this field is how often I need to explain to policymakers and stakeholders actually what is research and what I mean when I say why we're doing research. I don't need to explain that here, but it is in fact a challenge just to kind of convey um, what the purpose of the task is, and I've distilled it to uh, three points there. You may um, want to add others. But for researchers, this is a really challenging field. It is fantastically multidisciplinary. It is fantastically multinational. It is very fast-changing. It is extremely political in all kinds of ways. And we are trying to encompass the ways in which children are engaging with the internet in nearly 200 countries, if, if that's a kind of serious global um, ambition. So as a researcher, I, I have to sit and worry, and I think we all do, about um, questions like, do I want... 
the standardized, perfectly comparable uh, survey that I can roll out in the same way in every country so that I can measure and make rankings. And then I think of the controversy around the PISA studies, for example, and the, the questions of validity that arise in those um, uh, standardized surveys. Or do I want to do really kind of contextualized, local, you know, building up from what it is that uh, those within a particular context want to prioritize as their research? And then how am I going to share best practice? How am I going to allow lessons learned in one place to um, stimulate um, another? So in our report to uh, UNICEF, which, um, as I said, is now um, online from today, uh, we gave quite a bit of thought that I'm not going to develop um, in my remaining two minutes, uh, about how to manage that kind of scale and complexity. And I think in the world of internet, children and internet research, there aren't very many models, but beyond in the rest of the social sciences, actually there are a number of really good models of how to try to manage the scale of international research um, uh, globally in a way that uh, we, we, we can perhaps learn from uh, within our field. So to UNICEF, we suggested some kind of flexible modular survey that could have some comparable, bits, comparable parts, some uh, flexibly or redefined, locally tailored uh, parts that could be uh, managed in a way that would involve a productive dialogue, I think, between those working in different countries and those uh, uh, somewhere in a center trying to uh, manage the comparative task. We also, looking at the, um, the available models, gave a lot of thought to the infrastructure because just to manage anything on an international, dare I say, global scale uh, involves a lot of coordination, a lot of quality control, a lot of difficult questions about how the findings and the recommendations are formulated, at whether it's at a uh, centralised or dispersed level. So there's, we, we did a fair amount of thinking there, and I think this really should be a much um, wider debate about how to take what are a kind of scattered, if significant, set of studies from the global north and think on a larger scale. So um, just to kind of try to pull together, I think what, I, what, I want, what I'm saying is that so far researchers have done um, a pretty kind of interesting and thought-provoking job in examining children's engagement with the internet in terms of both the opportunities and the risks that it affords them across a range of platforms, services, and contexts. This is the task I think we now need to extend beyond the global north. But also, I've um, suggested, I, I know briefly, that if a knowledge of children's um, digital experiences is really to guide policy in a way that can advance children's rights, we somehow need to make the move from talking about risk to talking about harm. We need to make the risk that move from talking about opportunities to really measuring and tracking benefits. And we need to find a way to recognize children's agency so that we can see how the risks and the opportunities, the harms and the benefits come together. And that, if you like, if you think of um, risks in terms of um, protection and opportunities in terms of provision, then I think the risky opportunities really come together around questions of children's participation. How do we want children to participate in the digital age? And how are we going to find a way to allow very risk-averse societies to let them try things out and build their uh, resilience in so doing? So the report we've released is, um, uh, examines the findings um, and puts them in a much uh, greater uh, international context in terms of both countries and policies than I could possibly do uh, in my time today. And I'm fully aware that there are many 
political and practical issues that I haven't uh, even begun to scope because I wanted to focus on the, uh, the research tasks. But I think um, if, if we can agree, and I wonder if we can agree, that the overarching framework of the Convention on the Rights of the Child and its kind of equal, even-handed emphasis on protection, on provision, and on participation, if we can find a way of kind of articulating that in a way that works in the digital age, then I think we'll be kind of set on the right track going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sonia. <laughs> Great presentation. Uh, I would like to ask our keynote uh, speaker respondents uh, to take a seat with this. Amanda Langhart from the Pew Internet and American Life Project, Stephen Balkan from FOSI, the Family Online Safety Institute, and Urs Gasser from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And Sonia, if you also would like to take seat, that would be wonderful. Is that one? Yes. 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 Of course. Yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> And we have a, a slight change, actually, uh, with our keynote speak, speech respondents. Okay. Uh, Paloma Escudero is unfortunately stuck at the New York airport due to the weather. Uh, and so with that, I was wondering, Yasmina, Garrett, and Kate, if you actually would like to be the first respondents. Or just say a few words. No pressure here. <laughs> So, um, yes, uh, Paloma Escudero, our global director for communications, she was really keen to be here, and she called me from La Guardia. She sounded depressed. But, uh, you know, the um, bad weather had already arrived, so there was no way even by train to make it in time. So um, we have definitely, um, are we starting to internalize in UNICEF that children no longer have this um, offline reality and, and we have been working together different parts of the organization to address this. And as we heard today, um, it is getting really increasingly virtual also in countries um, in the global south. Many of the social interactions, information seeking and knowledge generation happens through the online engagement of youth. We have discussed today how important it is to better understand children's digital habits in order to inform policy and programs, but also importantly in order to uh, inform policy and influence policy making. We need to speak with the authority and we're taking this very seriously, which comes from knowing the issues children face when using online technologies and how their opportunities can be maximized. Um, <clears throat> we are also reaching important global milestones related to children's rights and well-being. Next year, we shall mark the 25th anniversary of the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which spells out basic rights that children everywhere have. The right to survival, to, do, to develop to the fullest, to protection, to harmful, harmful influences, abuse, and exploitation and to participate fully in family, cultural, and social life. And I think we also need to keep this discussion alive and see how we can provide more information to the committee that kind of continues to shape the child rights agenda 
and also um, my um, colleague Jasmina um, has uh, some ideas uh, and she's actually in touch with the committee on that that she can share a little bit later. I would like to emphasize three points that have so far not been given due attention in debates on children and the digital environment and where we still need to expand our knowledge and evidence base. When looking at the opportunities and benefits that internet and mobile technologies offer to children all over the world, we should be looking with a specific focus on equity. How do we ensure access to all children irrespective of their socioeconomic status, ability or disability, gender, geographical location and cultural context? What are the barriers to closing the equity gap at the level of the home, educational institution, community and policy level? Second, the generation divide. As Professor Sonia Livingstone mentioned, children's growing up in this era of exponential innovation has widened the general, generational divide between them and their parents, their teachers, and other caregivers. This gap, while becoming less dark in industrialized countries, is wider in lower-income countries where caregivers arguably have fewer opportunities to access information and communication technology. As a number of UNICEF country study, studies have pointed out, children in those countries turn to peers for guidance and support. Their first knowledge of the Google engine or Facebook usually comes from an older sibling or friend. Is this generational gap something that will disappear as the so-called digital native become adults? Is it wiser to invest in peer-to-peer -peer support than support for adults in order to better understand benefits and risks of the internet? These are the questions that still need a lot of exploration. Third, programs to address or prevent child abuse through ICT or to promote digital citizenship among children and youth are only emerging in many developing countries and very few have been rigorously evaluated for impact. Investing in these types of studies and research is criti critical as it helps to draw lessons that can be shared among practitioners from different settings. Policymakers are nowadays asking for concrete evidence of what works and under which conditions so that scarce resources can be invested in the most promising interventions. I'm going to see whether my colleagues would like to add to that. Um, so as we've, my name's Kate and I work with Garrett, but um, one of the things we mentioned at the beginning is we're coming from the communications background and again for us how important that research is in informing the communications, the public awareness messaging, the cam campaigns that are meant to capture and target young people around this and um, in my opinion they're often very uninformed by anything that young people actually feel about the internet and about digital and um, for me, working in this field for the past two years, it's been incredibly interesting to see that disconnect and seeing how we can try to get better at that by, again, also looking at particular country contexts uh, when it comes to communications, that evidence is crucial because um, how even the technologies or the platforms that are global, how they're being used is sometimes a little bit different in different countries, particularly at a, at a certain stage in where the adoption is. But then there's also different platforms, um, 
platforms locally developed that um, if you're only focusing on these big kind of macro developments and, uh, and, and what young people are using, you could miss those. And um, it's incredibly important at the country level to be doing that. Uh, my name is Yasmina Byrne, and I work for UNICEF Office of Research in Florence. And uh, as Sonia mentioned, we uh, uh, asked her to, to help us really take stock of the current research uh, globally, but also uh, our own research to see how we can improve, how we can do better, and, 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 and really what to focus on in the next few years. Um, and, and really, uh, uh, this is a great opportunity to see that this debate is becoming truly global. We are here at Harvard, um, uh, thanks to the hospitality of the Berkman Internet Center. Uh, we have a group of European researchers, but also uh, we work a lot with researchers from the South. And, and the proof that this topic is really becoming uh, important or the global policy agenda is also that the Committee on the Rights of the Child, which is an independent body of experts that examines states' reports uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, this UN committee about the implementation on the rights of the child, is giving this topic uh, one of uh, a high priority in their next deliberations. So in, in September next year, they're planning to have a day of general discussion on social media and children's rights. And this time, focusing particularly on opportunities, uh, opportunities and equal opportunities for children to benefit from internet. So I just want to say that this is a, a really timely event and a timely debate. And we just, I just hope that we continue this discussion in the next year as well. Thank you. Just in, to respond just in general or to respond to all these comments? Whatever you wish. Your, your party, please. Let's, let's go. All right. Um, so uh, I'm Amanda Lenhardt. I'm with the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. And um, I, so I read Sonia's um, document with um, great interest. And, you know, the, the hard part for me as a respondent now is um, I thought it was great. And I agreed with most of the things that she proposed. And so, um, you know, things that, um, the things that struck me in your document that I was really thinking about were things that you didn't touch on so much in your talk today. Um, you know, for me, I think your proposal to, for this global agenda, which focuses rightly, I think, on research, um, you know, the things that I was really interested in, in sort of unpacking a little bit more was um, helping, I think having UNICEF as a convener of this research is amazing. They're, you know, you're in the countries, you're in the right place, you have access. Um, but figuring out what to measure is really important. And I noticed in the document there's a real tension between kind of having really important kind of deep pieces of research that build theory and that really help us to get a deeper understanding of what's happening in various countries, but also the real incredible value of doing baseline work where we don't have it in so many places and being able to look at that cross-country I think is incredibly important. Um, and I, you know, obviously the Pew Research Center does a lot of that baseline work and that's a lot of what is in some ways our bread and butter um, and what people come to us for and what, um, what, what I think helps us to sort of have the media presence that we have. Um, and that's sort of to my second point is what, what is, what's success for UNICEF? I mean, I think this, you have so many opportunities here. Um, what, what is the, what's success for this project? Is it, you know, who is the true audience? Is it, um, is it governments? Is it 
parents globally? Is it um, NGOs? Is it businesses? Is it schools? Um, what do we want to tell them? Who do we want to help? What sort of information do they need in order to help make good decisions about how to incorporate technology into kids' lives? And I think that will really help to drive both the methods that you end up choosing, um, because I think Sonia's right, the whole beautiful, perfect, standardized across countries model may be some ideal, but that no one in the entire universe in the world can afford that. And so figuring out how to how to focus in with modules of information that's flexible but useful, um, and then what, what sorts of topics you should really focus on initially, because I think if you do decide, if UNICEF does decide to undertake this research, there's so much that you could do. What are going to be the things you are going to really want to focus on? Is it going to be just baseline use? Is it educational uses? Is it home use? Is it risks and is it real risks and opportunities, or is it other kinds of things that you really want to benchmark? Um, and I think all of those things, once you know who the audience is and you know what they need, then you'll know both what your success is and then better how to um, how to really take this forward. Um, and that will help you with dissemination and really making your work get out there into the world. And that was one of the things that Sonia mentioned in her piece was how can UNICEF get people to see the work that they do better than perhaps they do right now. And I think um, really targeting your audiences well with the research that you do and putting it out in plain language in the language of the people who are going to use it um, I think is the way to get people to, to really read it and use it. So those are my comments. Are you going to respond to the response? No, you go. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, so Stephen Balkan with the Family Online Safety Institute, and I did make it out of Washington, D.C. before uh, the crazy weather descended. Um, huge fan. Um, love your work. Uh, would love to see you. Basically, this is like your work of the last five or ten years going global. Mm. Careful what you wish for. Yeah, right. Um, and I say that only because... Um, you know, I've just come from, I was out on the West Coast a couple of weeks ago, uh, coinciding, uh, as it turns out, with uh, Governor Jerry Brown signing into law the Steinberg Bill. And the Steinberg Bill uh, brought in after research had been done, this is, by the way, in the good old global north, um, the idea of an eraser button. We should have an eraser button for the Internet. Uh, and also we should ban certain marketing materials going to under-18s in California. Well, that has somewhat of the uh, unintended consequence of them having to collect more personal information from kids to find out if they're 18 or not and if they're living in California or not. Never mind that the notion of an eraser button is complete nonsense. Uh, but that was perpetuated in the press. And the governor and the, the senator and a number of nonprofits got to feel good uh, about their research that then created public policy. So as I say, careful what you, what you wish for. Um, I also think that uh, we're in a position where we can learn a great deal from the so-called Global South. Um, I was in August, um, I went to uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic at the, um, at the invitation of the Vice President there, Margarita Cedeno de Fernandez. <laughs> and what she has done, first as the First Lady and now as the Vice President, is to create a network of community technology centers all around the island. So there are 91 community technology centers. And for many people, it's the first time they're getting their hands on new equipment with new software, and they're le learning new skills. I emphasize the newness because 50% of uh, computers on the island are refurbished. 
the stuff that we, once we're done with it, you know, we recycle and it ends up in places like the Dominican Republic. 74% 74, 74 of the software running on those machines are pirated. And so it, what it means is that the firewalls don't work and the parental controls don't work and the privacy settings don't work. So stuff that we take for granted up here in our global northness uh, doesn't necessarily transfer. But what I find fascinating, and we've agreed with the, um, the vice president's office, we're going to hold a Latin American conference there on April 2nd, um, and they want to develop a national framework for online safety. Um, we have an enormous amount to learn to reach the populations in our own countries that are not yet connected, particularly the Hispanic community, Native American tribes, and so on. Through their rather innovative ideas of a center that's not only just about technology, they also teach literacy skills, cooking. There's a garden out the back to teach people to actually create and, and grow their own vegetables. Um, they have a local radio that teenagers run uh, and give out health advice and so on, plus some fantastic music. So um, I, I would love to see this happen. Um, I'm also a little wary of certain international bodies. Um, they won't remain name nameless. I'll mention it, the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, which has, over the past decade or so, come up with some rather um, large-scale, top-down initiatives on child online protection, which are questionable, I would put it that way. Um, sometimes child protection is used by certain governments, I'll mention the Chinese uh, as an example, as a means to control information and to control populations. And um, from some of what we've seen out of the ITU, not all, there's some good people there, but there are serious concerns about how they might use or abuse uh, this kind of research. Um, but and, and then there's some other interesting... Uh, so while we were out at the Community Technology Center being shown around, um, the power went off. Um, and, the, and everyone just shrugged. It's like, yeah, that's what happens. And so even simple questions like, how many hours are you online, might also have to have a question like, well, how many hours is the power on? To figure out what the actual real numbers are. Um, so just a little something on that. The final thing I want to say is um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, just get on and do it. I, I think it's phenomenal. Get your hands dirty. We'll get in there with you, uh, help you with it in whichever way we can. But I do think you're right. We need some of this baseline stuff. Uh, we need to make mistakes and then learn from them uh, and then be very careful with the way in which the results are presented. Thank you. I, I only, so we're Scouser Berkman Center. Um, I've had the pleasure to work with my UNICEF colleagues and Pew colleagues uh, for the past few years on um, youth online issues. Um, I want to be very brief here and, and just basically to highlight what Stephen said. Um, I, I share your concern uh, that actually as a matter of strategy, we have to be very thoughtful about um, the role of research uh, as we expand um, our work from, from the north to the global south and the potential misuses or, or let's say interpretations uh, of, of what we produce, um, especially um, when, when getting at a very granular level um, in terms of the data uh, collection and um, 
our findings. Uh, to give an example, um, I had the pleasure to present some of the exploratory research um, that we did together with UNICEF in Vietnam at a workshop vis-a-vis -vis government officials. Now, uh, to be very honest with you, um, uh, it was a fantastic event and wonderful hosts and, and also local researchers, but it, it is challenging for a researcher basically um, to explain the data and explain uh, for instance, uh, if the numbers indicate actually young people like to play games, yes, that's not a big surprise, not even in Vietnam, right? Kids like to play online games. Um, uh, if then the minister uh, or the person from the ministry immediately responds and says, yes, uh, that suggests we need to limit uh, online access and uh, make sure kids don't waste their time online, um, and of course, these are all smart people and uh, you know, know exactly that there are 40 other pages in these reports talking about risks and opportunities. I think the point here is not so much to blame um, the Vietnamese government or any other government. Uh, we have, have a lot to de deal with here and do our homework first in our Western countries. But the point is this research operates even more so than other areas of research in a really highly politicized environment. Mm. And there is a tension, I would suggest, between um, the gold standard within uh, the world of, of research and actually uh, the political realities. Uh, I would argue, as we move from the north to the global south, uh, um, this tension is amplified, it's getting more challenging, and uh, I would argue, suggests a country-by-country -country approach um, because uh, how you want to navigate the political landscapes or how you want to address uh, some, some of the issues um, uh, that come up on the, politi the political agenda as a researcher uh, may be best decided by working with local uh, UNICEF offices, with local researchers and the like. Now, while I'm very sympathetic, of course, um, for, for creating uh, research toolkits and, and the like and modules that can be um, deployed across the world, I, I just um, hesitate uh, uh, when it comes actually to the practical value uh, of such an approach uh, given these um, political constraints. So it's a bit a sobering, uh, perhaps, uh, message from me uh, just on, on the experience over the past 10 years working in, in developing um, countries and trying you know, to do the good and right thing. Uh, not sure that you know, it easily translates good research into good policy making. So that would be my provocation to an excellent report, of course. <laughs> Shall I Please. respond? Yeah, okay. Um, so I thought I'd wait and hear what the, um, what the views were before um, trying to make a few comments, but then I do really want to hear um, what others have to say. Um, I think it's striking just to dwell on the fact that even in our countries, we have children really only have significant access to the internet for five, maybe ten years. This is just an astonishingly new phenomenon that we are already saying online and offline can't be distinguished and everyone's lives are transformed, but it's very new. And so the research enterprise around is equally new. And I... I, I would think one of the things that we've all been doing in the, in, in the research community in the last few years is just 
working out even what questions we might want to find interesting, um, how we might want to frame the questions, what kinds of methodological tools. And I think maybe we feel that we've got somewhere and we would kind of like to say these are the things we've begun to learn and these are the methods that we've begun to see are helpful and particularly these are the ones that don't seem like such a good direction. So there seems to be some kind of value in, in coordinating that and, and bringing it together. But really, if we imagine that the internet, um, digital media, you know, whatever we're going to call this, 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 these technologies of the digital age, um, if we really imagine that they touch every aspect of children's lives, and they increasingly will do so, then one research agenda is kind of immediately um, made impossible. This is everything that everyone is researching about children mm. that we now imagine there is some online dimension. So I think in thinking about coordination, what we're trying to do is not to say we need an agenda that covers everything children do with the internet, but how do we manage to keep this as a cross-cutting thread when people in health do a certain kind of research and people in education do a different kind of research and people in child protection do something different and that's as it should be. Those are very different kinds of expertise and activity um, you know, within one country as well as a, a, across many. So how do we think about that as a cross-cutting theme that can retain what we know and what we've learned and yet also be kind of flexibly adapted to the ways in which the, the, um, the technology but also the societies using the technologies are changing um, and we, you know, one thing we might just try by the skin of our teeth is to try to kind of track what some of those, those changes might be. So I, I, I actually think this is a moment when we are, um, you know, researchers like to feel they're a bit in control of their field, but I think actually hmm. this is the moment when we lose control. And we just say it is getting too big and is getting too kind of, you know, interestingly, creatively significant. We hope it isn't getting too um, scarily harmful in children's lives. We, you know, some things we, we do, as I suggested, need to know a lot more about. But for researchers, that means we can have a kind of both-and um, strategy. You know, some of us will continue to collect baseline data, and we will do our best to make it comparable across contexts. And others will say, excuse me, my skill lies in really understanding what is going on in this particular part of the world where there, the cultural factors are quite specific, and I want to understand how I can um, make a difference there. And there will be many other kinds of research. I hope there is more evaluative research. I hope there is more research that listens to children and reflects their views and embeds that in um, the process of, of policy making as well as research. But it will be both and. It will be fantastically disp dispersed. We are about to lose control. The question is just can we build a conversation that keeps hold of some of the resources, shares some of the knowledge, um, doesn't ever sit in one country and try to prescribe what should happen in another. But, you know, that agenda of children's rights, there are certain, you know, there's a there are some um, cross-cutting principles and values that we might want to adhere to, as well as um, recognising the diversity that um, exists around the world. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I think with this, uh, we would also like to open it up and hear your thoughts and feedback. Um, so whoever wants to go first. Oh, sorry. I, I'm Megan Richards from the European Commission, and I work on these issues. Um, I have a sort of uh, two-edged question. Uh, one is, uh, is there any parallel? Of course, it's not an, an exact and perfect parallel, but is there any uh, parallel research or similar research that was done when television was introduced? Because there were all sorts of 
ideas that this was going to be a disaster for children, and I, personally I think it is now a disaster for children, given what's on television, but <laughs> that's an aside. But uh, perhaps there's some, perhaps there were some studies, maybe the Pew Research Center did studies uh, 50 years ago when it first came out. Uh, that's perhaps something that could be folded into to some kind of research. And the other aspect is really a comment more than anything else, and that is that uh, next year, the European Commission's uh, big new seven-year research program will be starting Horizon 2020. And I think this is an area, of, of, obviously this is really a massive project, but cut into bits and pieces or you know, addressing some particular aspects, perhaps rights and potential innovation or childhood development or something, is something that could be a potentially very interesting area for future study and, and for... Uh, funding from one of the mm. areas there. Mm. We agree with can, everything. Oh, can, sorry. can I say something about television? Um, I think that's just such a great question, and there really should be. Um, I, 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 I was just thinking back because I used to teach a lot about television before we um, all forgot about it. I think. Um, my, my, the, of course, the, there was a television research community. There were lots of studies on how television promoted education. There were lots of studies on how um, television, um, uh, particularly uh, around questions of aggression, could be um, producing more aggressiveness and violence in children. Um, and there was a research community that tried to link them up. But I don't think there were really there was really the level of coordination, partly because the research community and the policy communities themselves were not so globally connected. So I can think of the commission that was held in Britain, actually it was held at the LSE, to research what was television doing to the children. I can think of the one that was done in the States, I can think of lots of countries, but they just happened piecemeal. And there is something about mm. the networked global age that makes us try to think we all have to connect up and learn from each other's lessons and it's a wasted resource um, if we don't. Yeah. Just, just a quick footnote. I, I, the other difference I would say is that even though television was really important in children's lives, actually in everyone's lives, um, and had all kinds of wide functions, we somehow kept thinking about it as something you do in your leisure. And I think there's a way in which the internet is something you do for your learning, for your work, for your health, for your, for your, for your exact everything, 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 everything that makes us want to give this a kind of higher priority in really um, paying attention, you know, sharing that knowledge. Yeah. Hi, great presentation. Uh, I'm Bill Shreven. I'm at WGBH here in Boston. I'm also affiliated um, this year at Berkman. Um, I was going to ask a question, but I think you, you answered it well, Sonia, with... This, I, this, I had a quick look at the report, and the word rapid appears about seven times. And I've been making digital media for kids and some media literacy for kids for 18 years, and, and no two months have been the same, let alone any two years. So the idea that you could right. create research Understand. that keeps up with every piece of technology, I think, is a, is a, is a, is a fool's errand. But I've also got an 18-year-old, and she's been progressing like all 18-year-olds have, you know, yeah as you'd expect, I think children aren't changing. There's this perception that children are growing up quickly and all of these things that you hear. I, I think that's not true. I think you're right to say let's focus on the things that are true of children, whether it's bullying or health or nutrition or fitness or mm. social skills. And if you want to use any of this technology as a lens through which to view it, that's great, but don't have it be a, a pair of binoculars or a telescope through which that's the only view that you have of children because you know, a well-rounded child spend some time with technology and they spend some time you know getting their dirt under their fingernails I mean it's 
it's we we get thrown by headlines about iPads, uh, and I spend a lot of my time making content that it's supposed to work on iPads. I mean, I understand the the appeal, uh, but I don't think kids are different now than they were when I was a kid. And I think the focus should be on what children are. And if you want to look at what they're using or how they're communi communicating, that's great. But I don't don't think you want to get lost down a rabbit hole of what the latest piece of technology is. I think you'll be always you'll be your research will just be a history lesson of what was true two years ago and you'll be producing reports on Facebook at a time when kids have all left it you know so I, I think focus on the kids and, and, and less on the technology I think would be the way to do it well that being said I mean it's a, it's a, it's a valid point I agree at the same time the television versus internet examples are, are also kind of suggesting that, of course, technology <laughs> can be very different and lead to very different questions, right? So my hope is that we could still take technology into account and look at the structural shifts in the information ecosystem. Now, of course, using the example of TV versus the internet, one of the key shifts we've been seeing, as you well know, of course, as, as everyone knows in here, is um, uh, the increased interactivity with content and essentially the, the social connections that, that it enables. And that this, these kinds of shifts, structural shifts, of course, have to do with the technology and how, is it, how it is used. Um, and I would say, well, you have to look not only at you know, how the kids change or what the new practices are, but of course you need to understand what's the underlying technology and how does technology interact with, with usage? So in some sense, it's more complicated than one or the other, right? Um, well, it wasn't an either-or. I just, I, I think, I, you know, I'm in that technology bubble making it. I'm making media literacy and also trying to protect kids and understand the legislation. So I'm kind of I swim in that pond all the time. take up like these rainbow bracelets that all the dads in the room were probably wearing that their daughters have made. I don't think that was internet driven. It was internet supported on YouTube, but it's mostly kids telling other kids, check this thing out, like we did when we were kids. Let me challenge you. I have a 17-year-old, and I've never seen dirt under her fingernails, by the way. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm inspired by that book, Last Child. In, uh, it is a shame. My older one, my 27-year-old, yes, but... The Last Child in the Woods, I don't know if you know that book, um, and that since around the, the, the 1980s, the distance that we allow our children to wander has come back by six-sevenths. Yeah, so that literally all we do is allow our kids in the, our, the backyard and maybe the next-door neighbor's backyard. I'm, I'm talking about in the great global north here. Um, whereas when, we were, when I was a kid, I, I went as far as I could get back to dinner at 6 o'clock. <laughs> And, and my parents had not a clue where I was. And, of course, there's no cell phones, yada, yada. So I, I think that this has nothing to do with the Internet. I think this has a lot to do with a kind of fear-based media messaging that we've had for quite a drumbeat for 20 or 30 years. And are you going to be the parent that allows your child to be abducted by those sexual predators that are out there? I would, I would have loved to have grown up in your household. But uh, anyway, sorry. 
I'm Tim Davies. I'm a Berkman Fellow and I'm a co-director of a children's rights-based organisation in the UK, Practical Participation. Um, and I've got a conceptual point and two methods points. The conceptual one is just to, to think of the, the provision, participation and protection in the Convention on the Rights of the Child not as things which are in tension with one another but as mutually reinforcing. So there's a lot of good writing on the fact that we can only do protection through young people's active participation mm -hmm. and through good provision and to see those not as sort of a seesaw but as a triangle that mutually reinforce. Um, the methods point, though, is, is to highlight... Um, the growth of, of some big data social science. So later this week I'm going to a web observatory workshop that's looking at how we're constructing ways of understanding the web through digital traces around the world. And I think we need to be not only engaging with survey methods but also with those emerging uh, social science methods that both hold out the potential and promise of letting us see what's happening quicker but also the danger of giving us a partial view and also the danger that unless we pay attention we'll have no data from under-13s in those spaces and we'll probably make 13 to 18-year-olds invisible as well. And so actually we need to be really engaging in that and making sure young people have the right to be heard in those research spaces. Um, and building on that, I think there's a big issue about research capacity building in the Global South. Uh, I work on a project funded by the Canadian International Development Research Centre who are developing some really good models of research networks, building research capacity, and linking to that also youth-led research. I think it's not just about... Um, involving young people in research as informants, but crucially about young people being co-researchers, employed by universities, under-18s, on research staff, as members of the team driving the research agenda. So I think I'd be keen to hear reflections on, on those two methods um, issues. Thank you so much. So, you speak from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> So I can um, speak a little bit to the big data side. So we at the Pew Research Center have been investigating, expanding into doing work with big data. And I think, you know, I think we, we hope in our own work to do work with big do, youth and big data, but I think in many cases with big data, there's the whole, and I think you have tried to address it by offering youth the opportunity to kind of opt into having their data being used, but at least in the U.S. context, youth don't always have they're not, they don't have opportunity to consent. So there's a lot of sort of ethical and methodological issues around getting access to children's big data and whether or not you can legally use it, um, particularly if, you know, depending on um, if they're under 13, probably definitely not because of COPPA legislation, but, um, you know, what, how do you get parental permission? There, there's just... It's a great, I love it, it's a great suggestion, but I think there's a lot of complexities that are not even, there's already complexities around using adult big data and I think ethics and privacy, and I think those get even bigger when you start looking at youth. I'd like to comment on the... Well, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you said and I would love to have a conversation with you later about um, capacity building especially because I think that's, that's really what we um, wanted to dwell on you know, we could have dwelt on more in the report. We had uh, quite a bit there. But, but somehow, capacity building, um, yes, with children, but also with um, researchers and um, uh, policymakers and practitioners in the Global South is key because, yes, we're not going to do this sitting here. We're not going to do it for the world. So, But that doesn't mean we don't know anything, have nothing to say. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it really is a question. And that's why you know, UNICEF is just such a, a kind of well-positioned organisation to think how to take this forward because it already does have the people working that link the researchers and the practitioners and the connection with the kind of the governments and so forth. They're already involved even in those political debates. So just thinking 
there's a structure to network them, there's a lot of local expertise. Um, but I suppose if I'm honest, you know, we also had some concerns about some of the kinds of quality of research that's being done, some of the things, as you said, that get called research, and some of the um, continued responsibility to manage how research is used after the report has come out, you know, and, and as Urs said, it can be misused um, in ways that really require a kind of continuing dialogue and continuing kind of you know, management of the afterlife of a, of a research report. So I think there are some really complex issues there, and I think this is, you know, this is what we should be talking about, but I don't know what the answer is yet. Hi. Um, my name is Erik Wittgens. I'm actually from the Southern Hemisphere because I work at the University of Aruba. And the point uh, about the Dominican uh, Republic um, really spoke to me because, you know, uh, power outages, we have those. Um, but also the way uh, youth get access to the internet. You spoke about the, the centers that were uh, put in you know, different locations. We don't have that. So I'm wondering if you start researching the Southern Hemisphere, um, it's very important also to look at the way children have access to it. Yeah. Because in Aruba, I would say most children, depending on social status, it would be their parents' Blackberry. Because oh. most Arubans, their you know, number one device that is internet connected is a Blackberry. Not all of them have laptops and stuff like that, but they have a, lap, uh, a BlackBerry. So I think also, you know, what does it mean? Is it an iPad or is it a, a personal computer in the home or in the, the case of the Dominican Republic in a center? You know, it, it makes for a big difference in how you interact. Before you... So actually, uh, one thing I forgot to mention is the number one way in which poor... I mean, and poor is a relative term in a place like the Dominican Republic, right? I think the top 1% earn 12000 a year, you know, and that's, that's the top 1%. Most kids um, access it in cyber cafes, and there are millions of cyber cafes. There's just like everywhere. And in fact, I did a talk at a library in Santo Domingo through an interpreter, and a woman came up to me all distressed because her 13-year-old son basically is gone for 12 hours a day, and he's at the local cyber cafe, and it's not in their interest by the way, to put any filters or to put any time restrictions because, of course, they earn money that way. So there's already a discussion within the government about not a law, perhaps, but at least some kind of code of conduct for cyber cafes who could put a seal on their window to say that um, we're not going to give totally unfiltered access and we will put time limits and that kind of thing. And I think those are classic little examples of how that could be used in other parts of the so-called global south. Um, the other word that I don't think we've used really much tonight is mobile, because mm -hmm. apart from cyber cafes, and, and you just mentioned the BlackBerry, yeah. everyone, everyone is going on, on mobile devices, and they're yeah. just jumping a generation from what we did, which started with the huge, you know, put the computer in the living room, you mm -hmm. know, and that big solid thing that was attached to the wall was the form, the basis of about a decade worth of parental um, education about how to look after kids. So anyway, I... Take enough, enough air time. No, that's fine. I agree. Oh, she agrees. <laughs> I don't always agree with you. That's true. My question, um, I'm from the Harvard Family Research Project, is around what role you would like to see institutions such as schools, museums, libraries take um, in terms of scaffolding this experience in this new space uh, for both parents and children. Well, that was a huge question. <laughs> Schools, museums, and libraries. Um, well, 
There are, there are, I, th I think maybe the crucial way to start there is to ask, in different contexts and for different concerns, what are the relevant institutions that apply? So for most children um, in many countries, the school is the kind of the, the equal way of reaching most of them. But the children who are not in school will never be reached that way. And then you need some other strategy. I've learned by doing um, some research in this country that here, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the library is a much more egalitarian space than it is even in the UK, where it's pretty much a kind of middle class only kind of space. So, you know, even a library means something different in, in different cultures. Middle and, class means something different here, too, by the way. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. It's true. Okay. And uh, museums, similarly. I mean, in, in, in many uh, European countries, at least, most relatively poor people do not spontaneously walk into museums, however much they try to reach out. So, I mean, I think, yes, it, the question is, what are the relevant institutions? And what we always say in this field is it's multi-stakeholder. And the question is, which are the stakeholders with power around the child? And I would include all of those. I'd also include the industry, which Stephen sometimes does and sometimes doesn't, and I would include legislative structures. You know, it's, it's about finding what is the right kind of balance that is going to not overly restrict but really meaningfully empower. Great. So the Swiss in me is actually uh, pressing me to watch the time. Uh, I know that there are many more. <laughs> relax, relax. <laughs> many more questions here. Hopefully, we can continue the, them over wine and cheese. Uh, but I wanted to give uh, an opportunity for Sonia and all the respondents and our colleagues from UNICEF to kind of share their final quick thoughts, if possible. Maybe we go with you first. Well, uh, before the meeting today, I had a discussion with Sonia, and she said, what do you actually want to get out of this? Do you, <laughs> do you want UNICEF to be a catalyst, or do you want to do all this research? And, <laughs> and actually, we do want to do a bit of both. We don't see ourselves as the only catalyst for this global agenda. We see that we can only do that collectively and in partnership with others. And we are absolutely aware that we can't do all the research, even though we do have presence in 150 countries. And we are not the only international organization that works on these issues. Uh, Sonia interviewed ACPAT and Plan International, and a host of local researchers and academics who are working on this. So, so we do want to find that space where we can contribute to this research, given our presence and our, uh, and, and, and our name as UNICEF, as a global UN agency, the biggest agency that deals with children and children's rights that if we can in any way influence policymakers, researchers, and others, practitioners, to uh, take this agenda forward. Just something quickly about the Convention on the Rights of the Child, because we referenced it several times. And I actually, while I really hope that this agenda is kind of moving forward quickly, I think for government it's a big deal um, to say, like, okay, um, the right to assemble peacefully 20 years ago. Some little kids gather somewhere and, you know, protest, I don't know, against what. is actually not a big deal, right? I mean, many people will sign on off, the, uh, off on that. But gathering or assembling now peacefully means, you know, it means potentially Arab Spring. It means, like, coming together, you know, to protest about an issue online. And it's just much, much harder to control. So I think, as Urs pointed out, with some governments, we will get, uh, you know, pushback, and it will be 
a longer, more rocky road to get there. So that's one point. And the other point is that I think it's easier to really make connections with program realities in countries. So, for instance, if you're looking at the issue of education in Turkey, um, there have been gender gaps and they're closing, but then if you extend it in the online world, there are also gender gaps. And um, girls, for instance, are intimidated to visit internet cafes because there are certain norms and standards, like having these high walls where people hide and, you know, girls just are not allowed or really don't feel comfortable going in there. So I think if you um, start developing your online extension to existing concerns that are already being dealt with by UNICEF and partners in country and you start tailoring these uh, online interventions really in line with existing realities and then I think it will over time um, take on a life on its own and it will actually get to the right to assemble peacefully or doing this or doing that. But I think if we really stop, like if we push too strongly from the top, I think we will receive like more pushback. And, and, and that's why also linking back to your question, what do you want globally uh, with this? Um, I don't think it's very easy to answer that question because there's so many like reality microcosmoses. We have like, you know, um, UNICEF is working basically on a four-year cooperation plan with governments that is like data-driven in terms of, okay, what are we doing in education? What are, do we, are we doing in protection? What are do we, we doing in child health? And yeah, as I said, I think the online extension needs to be developed to those challenges, in my opinion. Um, I just wanted to pick up as a last point on kind of the issue of equity and mobile. I'm South African, so mobile is like the primary way of connecting to the internet for many people as well, and not even on Blackberries. Those are like the fancy ones that you can use. People have uh, simpler phones to do it. But I think mobile is amazing, and it's brought internet in the last couple of years to people who wouldn't otherwise have access. But I think it's important to also bear in mind kind of maybe not new divides that it creates, but in terms of the kind of experience you have that's mobile only is very different to the one and the skills you acquire if you have access to other kinds of devices um, in conjunction with the mobile, particularly given that much of the content and the sites and things that are produced on the internet are still not mobile friendly, particularly if you have a really, really simple device that is like low bandwidth. And um, so that's a really thing, important thing to me for us to consider and especially to the people who are content producers as well as to, to bear that in mind all the time. And then the other one linking to that, which hasn't really been discussed, but it is an issue if you're from the global south, is the one of language. And again, the languages that dominate the content on the internet and what that means for what kind of experience people have with the internet and the content that they come across on it, be it on a mobile or any other kind of device. So. Do I start again? <laughs> um, you know, I think in, in just very briefly, I th I'm thinking of this as almost like retweeting some of the awesome things I've already heard today. But you know, to steal Stephen's phrase, um, do this. Don't don't let the enemy be the perfect of the good. I think that is actually we should we should have that emblazoned on the wall. This 
this is an amazing, enormous thing that we're talking about having UNICEF or partners do, and it's going to be hard, but I think it's incredibly important. And there's, I mean, we know at the Internet Project, and I'm sure everybody else up here gets calls all the time, well, do you have data on how people do this outside of the United States or outside of the UK or outside of Europe? And and we never have an answer for them, or we rarely have an answer for them. And so I think, you know, this is, there's such a need. There's such, um, this would be incredibly useful. Um, and I think also the other part of this that's so important is to retweet Sonia's concept about risks and opportunities, really balancing that and not having this just focus on like risks, 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 and harm, 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 but on the good things that can come out of this um, so that good stories and bad stories can be told from this research and that it can be um, can really be used to make, um, I think, positive policy um, is a real service that this research could provide. Wow, what she said. And <laughs> I would say if this could be part of a global change in the conversation around online whatever, online safety, online. I think, I think we've got to move. We have to acknowledge risks. If you go in Pollyannish and say, hey, it's all great, the kids are fine, no good. You do have to start by acknowledging risk and then shift the conversation. <laughs> I love the fact that you're talking about rights. I think the word empowerment, have, it's very overused, but I think it's a key mm -hmm. one. Um, and it's about lifting people up. It's about giving them the tools to to connect, to share, and do great things online. And uh, you know, if we can demonstrate, particularly to nervous governments around the world, that this can be a platform for good uh, and for good purposes, I think then uh, you would have succeeded. Hmm. You'll do it. You'll do it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think... Um, uh, Monica, I said earlier, as I was planning this talk, I said, she made a joke about John Wayne, and I said, well, I was going to try and bring John Wayne into this talk because I was just thinking how to do that. Because I was thinking about that analogy of um, the Internet as the Wild West, which is kind of where we began. And then I was imagining um, myself as a very small child watching a Western um, on a kind of black-and-white TV in my grandparents' house many decades ago, and John Wayne kind of came in. And, you know, what was scary as the child watching a lot of those films was um, the sense that, um, you know, there were seriously bad guys and seriously, um, you know, of course, he was the seriously good guy. Mm. And, that's, and that's, I think, how we're still actually thinking about the Internet. We think the Wild West metaphor is gone, but it isn't. We still think there's the great guys and we still think there's the really bad guys. But actually, what was astonishing, when I first came to the States and I went to one of those, you know, dead kind of ghost town, western sets where there's just the... You've been to Washington? No. <laughs> yeah, government shutdown is a whole different story. Anyway, what, I, what of course was really missing from, um, from the, 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 the scene that John Wayne would walk into was the culture. It was the infrastructure. It wasn't that there was a law or there wasn't a law. It wasn't that there you know, kind of was a, a murderer or not or someone with a gun. It was a whole host of infrastructure, that, of culture, of norms, of ways of behaving, of ways of looking out for children, of ways of providing for children, of ways of allowing children to be protected according to their evolving capacities sometimes without um, you know, constraining adults. Um, that wasn't there, and that 
that's why it was a really kind of scary yet fascinating scene and that's what isn't there online and I do think that's what we are evolving and when we do it there will be cities and towns and countrysides and they will be fantastically different all over the internet just like they're fantastically different all over the world so that's my John Wayne metaphor it was the absence of all that stuff that makes us civilized that we don't yet have online but we are developing and I hope research makes some contribution towards that. Thank you so much. I, I would like to end with an invitation, actually, and um, a commitment. Uh, so the commitment by the Workman Center is to host, together with all the partners who are in this room today, spoke, and others that haven't spoken, uh, um, to host a symposium next year uh, with, actually, researchers and, and friends from the Global South who are missing, largely, today in the audience and as speakers. Uh, <laughs> only due to time constraints um, uh, but host a symposium a two day symposium uh, mapping uh, the stage um, uh, of the state of research what do we know about uh, global internet usage access differences and similarities uh, around the globe where are the knowledge gaps so that would be one segment of the symposium as envisioned the second one would focus specifically on what has come up, uh, uh, certainly uh, on this panel, uh, the interface between research and policy making and the different actors that we need to understand and different incentives and motives. Uh, and the third uh, set or, um, of issues or cluster of issues would be why, why do we care uh, and why should we care? And our hope is also to invite youth uh, voices and, and young people who, who are really doing an amaz amazing works uh, in, in many of the countries. Um, we just visited um, China uh, as every year and what is happening for instance in, in maker spaces in China, how, how young people uh, engage with te digital technologies, uh, more looking at it from a social innovation uh, perspective, it's just amazing. And so uh, our hope is to, to uh, host such a symposium next year uh, together with all the partners. And I hope to see all of you uh, uh, joining uh, back then. Uh, and uh, with that, I turn over to Sandra with many thanks, uh, of course, also from my side. So uh, with this, I would like to thank again our colleagues from UNICEF for co-hosting this event uh, with us. I would like to especially thank Sonia for coming here today and presenting her work. Uh, and also our respondents uh, for being brave and sharing your thoughts with all of us. And a special thanks to all of you for really coming and caring about the issues we, we research here. And I hope that you will stay for wine and cheese on the other side of the wall when it goes up. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.